If you guys will look at your notes, you'll see that uh, Matthew 18 is not where we're going to be studying, but we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. Um, Jesus in both, both passages of Scripture uses the same analogy, um, but we are going to be looking at Luke 15, so don't be deceived uh, by what's on the back wall here. Um, as Matt said before, um, as I know it's true of him, uh, passion for the Word of God and to see it accurately handled. And uh, I trust that that will happen tonight. I don't want to waste any time tonight. I want to get right into it. But I want to pose a question to you. Have you as a Christian, or maybe you're not a Christian, have you, has, have you as a Christian ever thought of what, it, of what makes God joyful? What makes God glad? Or happy? Have you ever thought about that? God is definitely a God of joy, isn't he? Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that something that originates from God, from the Spirit of God, is joy. God is a God of joy. But the question I ask you tonight, Christian or non-Christian, what can bring God joy? Can anything bring him joy? Can anything bring God joy? I want to show you why the answer to that question is yes. There is something that can bring God joy. And I want to show you, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 15. <clears throat> Luke chapter 15. Third book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 15. Look, at, look with me at verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In the same chapter, look at verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Look in the same chapter at verse 32. This is the prodigal son. And as you know, the... If any of you know the prodigal son, when the son comes home, this is the father speaking in verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. The same word is joyful there. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The theme of the 15th chapter of Luke is this. It is the joy of God. The joy of heaven. As we see in the prodigal son in verse 32, it's the, it's the joy of the son returning. But what brings about this joy, specifically, here in Luke 15? It is this. It is this. The son coming home. Or as the text says, look back in verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Or flip back to verse 7. What brings him joy, what brings God joy is this. One sinner repenting. The same you see in verse 10 of the same chapter. I don't want you to miss the point tonight. 
I know I talked with uh, my roommate Andy Benson about the point of the passage of certain passages of scripture. I don't want you to miss the point tonight. The point, and that's why it's on the front of your sheet at the top, is heaven's joy. It's God being glad. And what produces God being glad is this, a sinner repenting. If there's anything you take away from tonight, I want you to know that. That God is glad over someone who is lost and does not know God turning to him. I want you to know that. Luke 15 is an amazing passage of scripture, to say the least. Um, in it, as, as I've already expressed, you have the wonderful passage of the prodigal son. I personally believe, it doesn't matter what I believe in the end, but I personally believe, as I was telling Matt this yesterday and Andy Benson before, that this chapter alone at least is a 10-part sermon series. At least. I wish we had time to reveal all the truths that, were, that are in it, but... Um, we don't, <laughs> and my notes will fail me. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 tonight, though. Luke 15, 1 through 7. So let's read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Christ. <clears throat> and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them? So he told him a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that he has lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my, lost, my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who need no repentance. This is our text tonight. You know, there's a lot to be said about the gospel of Luke. Like many other passages in the, or many other authors, I'm sorry, in the New Testament, Luke is writing to people who are non-Jews, or as many of you know, Greeks, people who are not of Jewish descent. And Luke, as well, is not of Jewish descent as, uh, likewise. He is a Greek as well. And because of this unique, these two unique features, there's a theme in the Gospel of Luke. There's a theme that is continuous through the Gospel of Luke, and it is this, that Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, listen to this, has come for and has compassion for those outside of the first century Jewish society. Or if you look down at your paper, that Jesus Christ has come to save those who were ostracized, those who were the outcasts of the first century Jewish culture or Jewish society. That is a theme in the, in the Gospel of Luke. That he has come to save sinners. As we'll see tonight in Luke 15 and in Luke 7, as you guys went over with Tanner, the sinful woman that he has come to save non-Jews or Gentiles. In Luke chapter 2, Luke writes, for, for, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Luke 3, 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke 17, Christ heals ten leopards, some of which were Samaritans, Greeks. This is a theme, that he has come to save sinners. 
non-Jews, Gentiles, that he has come to save the poor in Luke chapter 16. As you see the poor Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, that he has come to save tax collectors, men who were loathed in that day and age, as we'll see in Luke 15 here, and also in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus calls forth Levi, as many of you will know him as Matthew, one of the authors of the, of the Gospels. So this theme is present in the Gospel of Luke. That Christ has compassion and has come to save those outside of the first century Jewish culture. And that theme is present in our text today. So with that being said, as sort of an intro, let's read verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Who are these tax collectors and sinners? I'm going to help you out with that tonight. Tax collectors in the New Testament were known as publicans. Now, don't worry about the word publican. You can do your own research. But this is what they were known. They were, they were publicans in that society, and they were known to be this, extortioners, thieves, criminals. They took money from people wrongfully, as many of you would probably feel about taxes today, right? <laughs> publicans or tax collectors in the New Testament were subordinates to men who were of high rank in the Roman Empire. They worked for these Roman, these Roman knights. And they collected taxes for these people. And these Roman men were Greeks. So these Jews in the New Testament who were tax collectors were working for Greeks, collecting all types of taxes. They sought to maximize their profit, demanding higher taxes, most likely higher than what the Roman government authorized. These men were known as this, listen to this, Jewish sellouts. Jewish sellouts by the Jewish community. They were traitors and basically, basically working for the enemy himself as they worked for Romans, Greeks, non-Jews, people who loved not God and knew not God. Turn with me to Luke 3. Hold your finger here. Flip back to Luke chapter 3. I want to give you an idea of who these men were. Luke 3, this is John the Baptist speaking, and he preaches a message of repentance. And some, after they hear this message of repentance, answer. Look at verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, him being John the Baptist, Which, what then shall we do? And he answered this, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So John the Baptist preaches a message of repentance, and these people are like, okay, what should we do? What should we do to be right for, before God? And look who also asks a question after John preaches the message. The tax collectors, verse 12, look at it. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, teacher, what shall we do? Look what he said to them. Verse 13, and he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. See, this is what these men were known for. Extortioners, they stole from people. And they were hated because of that. In Matthew chapter 22, you know, Jesus has asked the deceitful question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The Jewish, the Jewish leaders knew that if Christ answered yes or no, they would have him in their traps. And Christ didn't answer yes or no. 
But specifically, if Christ answered yes, which he didn't, if he answered yes, that they should pay taxes to Caesar, the Jews, which was most of Christ's audience in that day, day and age, would have condemned Christ of being betrayal to the Jewish nation. Why? Because of their loathe and hate for taxes, for the Roman Empire, for tax collectors. They hated these men and anyone who had anything to do with them. So these are who these men were. Flip back to Luke 15. These were who these men were. They were hated. And also who, are, who draws near with them are sinners. Who are sinners? Aren't we all sinners? Well, yes. We're all sinners. But specifically here, this word is used to refer to men and women who were well-known sinners in that day and age. They were the chief of all sinners. And their disobedience was blatant to everyone. In Luke 7, as you guys went over, verse 47, it says this, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. See, most likely this woman was a prostitute. And everyone knew of her sin. And they looked down upon her. See, this is how this word is used here. And so we see in verse 1 that these are the people who are drawing near to Christ. They're drawing near to Christ. Though they were ostracized by the community, though they were hated and avoided and spoken down upon in this community, they drew near to Christ for some reason. And you know, this seemed to be the norm for Jesus, whether it was men approaching him, sinful men, or vice versa. He never minded the company of society's rejects. He never minded the company of them. And though Christ didn't mind the company of such people, tax collectors and sinners, though he didn't mind that, there were some who did. Look at verse 2. There were some who, who didn't like this. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them? I'm trying to do my best to portray what they would have said. This man receives sinners and eats with them? What? Who are these men, these Pharisees and scribes? Pharisees and scribes, like I said, were the religious leaders in that day and age. And you know the word used for Pharisee is, comes from a Hebrew root word, and it's interesting. It means this, to be separate. And that's exactly what these men were. They were separate in that day and age. Why? Because they were extremely accurate and minute when it came to the word of God. Or as they would say, the law of Moses in that day and age. Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, as some of you know. And in Philippians 3, he tells us that he was zealous, right? He was a Hebrew of all Hebrews. And he says, as to righteousness under the law, this was Paul as a Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. See, Pharisees outwardly, they kept the law, though they were self-righteous. When it came to appearing before men as holy and blameless in society's eyes, they displayed this. And they were respected like none other. And I believe that's an understatement. Look at, look at John chapter 7. This is how these men were respected in that day and age. John chapter 7. Christ 
Christ is teaching. He just got done teaching on the living water, and many people are listening to his message, and there, ari- there, ar- there arises a division among the people. Some were saying he was a prophet. Some thought he was a phony. Many wanted to arrest Christ. Start at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to him, Why did you not bring him, him being Jesus? They wanted to arrest him. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. They heard Jesus teaching. They were amazed. He spoke as one with authority. No one's ever spoke like this man. And look what they say in in 47. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Catch this in 48, in verse 48. Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Have we believed in him? Then why are you? See, these men were respected that much in that day and age. People said what they said, did what they did, believed in what they believed. Have we believed in them? And the same were for their friends, the scribes. They were respected in that day and age. Foot back to Luke 15. The same were for the scribes. They were also distinct when it came to the law, but in a different way. They studied the law intently and they knew it like the back of their hand. Like the back of their hand. Ezra in the Old Testament, is a, he was a scribe. And he tells us in his book in the Old Testament, Ezra chapter 7, that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The scribes were skilled when it came to the, to the word of God. And in the same chapter, Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, he says, He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules. I'm just trying to give you some understanding of who these men were. They were separate in that day and age. Distinct. And so we see in Luke chapter 15 that these men grumble, it says, at verse 2. It says they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners? Christ, you're eating with such people? Such a reaction was not uncommon in this day and age when it came to these men. It wasn't uncommon for these men to react like this. And it was for for two reasons. One, because the Messiah was hanging out with such people. They hated Christ. Why would you hang out with such people? And you're you're the Savior? And the second reason is because the Pharisees and scribes believe what they believed about these type of men. I already told you, these were the outcasts. But the Pharisees... Above all, they hated these men, these tax collectors and sinners. Flip a page with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 18. I want to give you a a brief description of what the Pharisees thought of the the sinners and the tax collectors. And this is what birthed a response like this, the grumbling. Luke 18, you have the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable. And in in verse 9, Luke 18, 9, it says... He told a parable of those who trusted in themselves and they were righteous and treated others with content. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Listen to his prideful prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, 
or even like this tax collector. See, these, this, what the, this is what the Pharisees thought of these tax collectors and these sinners. I thank you that I'm not like them. They hated them. And so that's why you get this reaction in Luke chapter 15. That's why you get this reaction in Luke chapter 15. Because they looked at them with content and hate. They hated them. And Jesus responds when they react this way, as we see in Luke 15, verse 3. It says, so he told them a parable. So he told them a parable. I think it's important to note, whenever you come to this rich portion of Scripture in Luke 15, and when you read the the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, these are all birthed from Christ's response to these men's reaction. So they grumble at the fact that Christ is with these men, and Christ responds. Three parables, with three parables in response to their reaction. And just to remind us, as we're studying the parables, what a parable is, it's, it has two purposes, a parable. One is judgment. It's judgment on those who are around Christ, who heard his teaching and saw his works, but still rejected him. Mark 4.12 tells us it's judgment. Mark 4.12. And in result, they, as the prophet Isaiah puts it, these men who rejected Christ's teaching, were dull of heart. Or as John 12 puts it, they couldn't believe. They got to the point where they couldn't believe. So one, a parable was judgment to the religious leaders. But two, it was a secret of heaven. A secret of God revealed to those who were his followers. His disciples, and we get that from Matthew 13, 34. There were truths about God revealed to these people who would listen. Truths about his kingdom. And so Christ gives a comparison. He gives an earthly comparison to reveal a heavenly truth. If you look down on your paper, I have one part that says the first part of the comparison and the second part of the comparison. And the first part of comparison is meant to bring home the heavenly truth that we'll see in verse 7. And we'll eventually get there. So Christ gives an earthly example. And he gives an earthly example that would have undoubtedly been understood in that day and age. Undoubtedly. Verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So you ask, what, what was significant? Why was this significant to Christ's listeners? A shepherd and sheep? Well, to put it as plainly as possible, goats and sheep were, were very important in that day in society. It is believed, and this comes from a little history research, that everyone in the first century Greco-Roman world, at some point in their life, listen to this, took on a role of, role of a shepherd. So at some point, whether you're a man or a female, no matter how old you were, you had a little sheep or a little goat, and you took care of it. You played the role of a shepherd. You played the role of a shepherd. And so what Christ does is he gives an earthly example of a shepherd and a sheep. And what he does, I want you to notice in verse 4, he doesn't place them as though they were the lost sheep. He places them in the mind of the shepherd. Look at verse 4. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep? See, when I first came to this wonderful passage of, of Scripture, I had the tendency to believe that Christ wanted his listeners to see themselves as the sheep. Lost, destitute, in need of a shepherd. 
And though this example is used often throughout Hebrew scripture, and even in the New Testament in John 10, that wasn't what Christ was doing here. Listen to that. He wasn't doing that here. Here he places his listeners in the role of the shepherd, and he poses a question to them. If you lose a sheep, are you not going to leave the sheep, that one sheep? Are you not going to leave the 99 and go get that one sheep? So the question comes, what was the care of the shepherd in that day and age? Would he have gone and got that one sheep and left his 99? Sheep were, to say the least, in that day and age, the life of the shepherd. Hear me when I say that. They were the life of the shepherd. They provided food for the shepherd, 1 Samuel 25, 18. They were a source of clothing for the shepherd, Leviticus 13, 47. And even, listen to this, they were important when it came to worship, serving, a sacrifice, serving as a sacrificial offering for the shepherd. And we get that from Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. These sheep were valuable to the shepherd. And because of their value, because of what they offered the shepherd, therein lie the great responsibility for the shepherd to devote his life and his time to the well-being of his, his wee little sheep. Would he have left the 99 to go and get the one? Would he? You bet your buddy would. You bet your buddy would. But I want to illustrate this a little better for you to show the care that the shepherd had for the sheep. Flip back with me to 1 Samuel 17. <clears throat> for those of you who don't know where 1 Samuel is, who are not as familiar with the uh, Old Testament, I'm not as good with it either. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Oh, we got there. We got there. So 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And as you flip there, I want to ask a question. This is an interesting question. You know of David, right? David who sinned with Bathsheba. Uh, David who was the great shepherd or the great king of Israel. Why was David so ready to fight the mammoth of the man Goliath? You know of the story David the Goliath, whether you grew up in knowing the Bible, you hear of the story of David. Why was he ready to take on that challenge to fight David and Goliath? Why? 1 Samuel 17, 11 tells us this man put a great fear in King Saul and in Israel. Why was this man ready to fight? Why was David ready to fight this man? Well, one answer would be this, because God had filled him with his spirit and because David truly trusted in God. And that would be a correct answer. But that's not the only answer. There's another answer. Verse 36. Let's look, at, let's look there. Verse 36 of 1 Samuel 17. <clears throat> 31, I'm sorry. I, 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 I totally messed you guys up. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke was heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. You can't fight this man. Are you crazy? 
Look, what, look, how, look how David responded in verse 30. What is he going to say? But David said, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Hmm. You were a shepherd? That's your answer while you're ready to fight? Goliath? Because you were a shepherd? I, I would have been like, what? <laughs> Look at the end of verse 34. And when there came a lion, here's where it's interesting. When there came a lion or a bear, and they took a lamb of the flock. So they took a lamb from the flock. I went after it, verse 35, and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, if the animal, the fearsome animal arose against him, look what David did. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I'm getting into it up here. Your servant, verse 36, verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has devoured the armies of the living God. So why was David ready? Because he was a shepherd. And the shepherd in that day in society dealt with many issues like lions and bears. I, I'm not going after a lion and a bear to save a little sheep. But this is, what, this is what the shepherd did in that day and age. They went after it because of their great care for the sheep. They went after it. Maybe you'll realize Jesus' rich words in John 10 now when he says this, John 10, 11 through 15, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and is not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus speaking. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father's. I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the care of the, of the shepherd that he had for the sheep in this day and age. He's willing to lay down his life. And Jesus' audience, listen to this, they knew this. They knew the great dedication that the shepherd had to a sheep. So flip back with me all the way back to Luke 15. I know I took you a ways. Luke 15, so the question was, Jesus says, what man of you, if a sheep is lost, are you not going to leave the 99 and go after the one? In that day and age, the answer was undoubtedly, yes, we're going to go. Or in this case, no one. No one would not leave the 99 sheep and go after the one. Because the shepherd had great care for the sheep. No one. And so read verse 5 as we continue. And when he has found it, he lays on his shoulders rejoicing. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he has found it. And what, what other reaction would you expect out of a shepherd when he has gained into his possession his, his precious sheep? It says he lays, he lays it on his shoulders. And I, I believe... This indicates two things. One, the great care for the shepherd as we already saw. But two, it says something about the sheep. Sheep, surely, if you do any, any study on sheep, are very dependent animals. Very dependent animals. And so the sheep, if it was lost, was probably tired, wearisome, soon to be dead, pretty much. And so the shepherd, when he finds it, knowing this, lays it on his shoulder. Oh, the great care for the shepherd, huh? So the reaction is this. He rejoices. He was happy, wasn't he? Yeah, he was happy. 
Was this just a smile or a grin when he found the sheep? Was this just a smile or was this a yippee, I found my, found my sheep? <laughs> was it that? No, it wasn't that type of rejoicing. It wasn't. It was much greater than that. It's the same rejoicing, same word that Apostle Paul used when he was in prison and when Christ was being proclaimed. Paul had the same type of joy over Christ's name being proclaimed. It's the same rejoicing that Jesus said his disciples should have because theirs was the kingdom of heaven. The same rejoicing in Matthew 5, 12. It was the same rejoicing that took place in wee little Zacchaeus' heart when he was in the tree and the Messiah called him out for the tree. The promised Messiah called Zacchaeus. It was that rejoicing. Or it was this. Listen, ladies. It was this type of joy that Christ said in John 16 that a woman has after delivering her baby into the world. This was the joy that the shepherd had. John chapter 16. The same joy. And so he rejoiced greatly after finding his sheep, right? Verse 6. And when he comes home, this is the shepherd after finding his sheep and it's on his back. He calls together his friends and, he's, and his neighbor saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my lost sheep. Man, wasn't this guy tired? He just carried a sheep on his back. He still found it necessary to, to call upon his friends and rejoice. This confirms the great joy that the shepherd had. So, we see in verse 2 that there's this response, right? That the Pharisees and scribes had. And it was because of this that Jesus, the promised Messiah, were fe was fellowshipping, eating, fellowshipping, that's what that meant in that day and age, with these tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus responds with a comparison, a judgment to the religious leaders and a secret about himself to those who would listen. And this earthly comparison, like I said before, would have been understood. Would have been understood. The idea of a sheep, a shepherd and a sheep, he places the listeners in the place of a shepherd and poses a question, which man of you would go and search for the lost sheep? In that day and age, it was very clear the sheep were so valuable. Everyone would have went to search for that sheep. Everyone. So the shepherd would go after the sheep. He would find it. He would rejoice. And he rejoiced exceedingly because he found his dear sheep. A rejoicing that was far from shallow. A happiness that had some depth to it. So see, see all, see this first part, four through six, was clear to Jesus' listeners. That's why I didn't, that's why I didn't need an answer. This was the first part of the juxtaposition. I like that word. It's the, placing two things beside. This first part was a, a review session to his listeners. The great care that the shepherd had, don't miss this, please. The great care that the shepherd has for a sheep was known. And he rejoiced over it with a great rejoicing. See, this was clear to Jesus' listeners. This was clear. But remember what a parable was? You took an earthly comparison, right? Juxtaposition. And you placed it right next to a heavenly truth. Something that wasn't understood in that day and age. The first part was understood, but the second part wasn't. What's the second part? Verse 7, look it. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who needs no repentance. <laughs> Take something that was undoubtedly clear, use an earthly example, and make a comparison to it to something that wasn't blatant, something that wasn't clear, that Christ has, that God has joy over one sinner repenting. That wasn't clear. And Jesus brings it home in verse 7. He says, just so, right? Or I like how the NASB puts it. I tell you that in the same way, well, in the same way as what, Jesus? Well, in the same way that the shepherd rejoiced at finding his lost sheep, his dear sheep, in the same way, and catch this, or here's a question, did the shepherd rejoice over the 99 sheep? Was there rejoicing over that one? No. He rejoiced over that one and that one alone. So Jesus says, in the same way, there is joy in heaven for God over one sinner who repents. And there's none over 99 righteous person who need no repentance. He brought it home with that truth. To a much greater extent, there's heaven before the angels of God, Luke 15, 10. God is joyful. He's happy just like the shepherd was happy after finding his lost sheep over one sinner repenting. And the shepherd didn't notice the 99. He forgot about them. In the same way, God rejoices over one, one sinner repenting. God is happy. And he cares not for the 99 righteous. And this is referring back to the religious leaders. As Matthew 8, 18, 9 tells us, trusted in themselves and thought themselves to be righteous. You know, this wasn't the first time Christ revealed this truth. Though he brings it home and gives a comparison, this wasn't the first time he stated this, this rich truth. As we close, look back at Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9. This wasn't the first time he would, Christ said this. It wasn't understood here either, but he said it before. Same situation, though this is Jesus calling Matthew or Levi. It's the same situation as Luke 15. Look at verse 9 with me. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on, he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. Tax collector. We don't like him. And he said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners, just like Luke 15, came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said, same, same reaction, same people. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? Why? Why? And, and here the Pharisees are, asking the, are, are posing this question to the disciples. And I believe they didn't know the answer. That's why Jesus responds in verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, listen, listen to these. Those who are well have need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. Verse 13, go and learn what this means, speaking to the Pharisee. Learn this. You don't know it. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Man. Christ came to call not righteous people who think they're good, but the sinners. 
but the sinners. But was that enough that Christ revealed that truth? Here's a question, an interesting question. And this will lead you, I hope, to read the rest of Luke 15 because the story isn't over. Was that enough that Christ revealed this truth with a parable? Does Luke 15 say this? Listen, that God delights in sinners? Does it say that? No, it doesn't. That God delights in sinners who repent. There's no joy in heaven over unrepentant people. There is joy in heaven over sinners who repent. So the question is, clearly, have you repented? Have you had a change of mind? Have you turned to God? You who are a sinner, have you turned to God? You who are not right before God, have you repented? Is heaven rejoicing over you? Is God happy? Have you caused God to be happy? If, if heaven is rejoicing over you, believers, which there are here in our midst, my words are the same as Apostle Peter in his letter to his exiles in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6. It reads this. You don't have to turn there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter reminds this, his, his exiles of this great salvation. And in verse 6, he says this, in this rejoice. Believers, rejoice. Be glad that God has saved you. And don't you forget it. Don't you forget the blood that bought you. And if heaven isn't joyful over you, unbeliever, my words are the same as my Lord's words, and my message is the same as my, my Lord's message. In Mark 1.15, he says, the time has come, this is Jesus speaking, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Unbeliever, repent. Today is the day. Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not righteous. No one's righteous, that you're a sinner, and that's the purpose that Christ came for us, sinners, repent. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, Lord, and to see truths, Father, that are in it. And Father, the truth of tonight, of tonight is clear, Lord, that you are joyful over not only sinners, Lord, not sinners, God, but sinners who repent, Lord. And my prayer is this, Lord, for the believer, just as the Apostle Peter told his exile readers or audience to rejoice in the salvation that they had. For the believers, I pray that there's great rejoicing, Lord, and that we remember the blood that bought us. And for the unbeliever, Lord, I beg and pray, God, that they will see that God is happy if they come to repentance, Lord, that they not miss that tonight, that God is happy if they, if they turn their life around from their sin and trust in him, that God is happy. Lord, I pray that they don't miss that. That's the point at which Christ came is to save them, Lord. Would they hear that message and would they repent, Lord? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Christ's blood. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.